Hi! Hey, welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm K. Albert Little, an evangelical, non-denominational convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? He was, of course, on his own journey, but that question catapulted me into the history of Christianity. I read from the early church fathers, the writers who wrote immediately after the books of the New Testament, all the way up through Christian history, into the Reformation, and beyond. It was then, as I began to read about the roots of my Christian faith, that I encountered the Catholic Church. As I began to read from primary sources, from actual Catholic writers and theologians and historians, that I realized that what I thought Catholics believed, what I thought I knew about the Catholic Church, was more often than not wrong. Dead wrong. This podcast serves to fill in that same gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week I sit down with influential Catholic thinkers to have real Catholic conversations from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by Father James Bradley. Father Bradley is an Anglican convert to Catholicism by way of the personal ordinariate. An ordinariate, a pathway established by Pope Benedict to welcome Anglican priests and Anglican parishes into full communion with the Catholic Church. And that's exactly how Father Bradley became a Catholic. He was an Anglican priest drawn to the tradition, the liturgy, and I think maybe most importantly, the authority of the Catholic Church. This is a fantastic interview. Whether you are an Anglican looking to become Catholic, whether you are an Anglo-Catholic, whether you are a convert or thinking of converting in any denomination whatsoever, this is an interview for you. Father Bradley puts so eloquently the experience of conversion, of coming under the authority and the protection of the magisterium, the Pope and the bishops, in union and in communion with the hierarchy, the framework that Jesus Christ established. And of course, worshiping in that beautiful ancient liturgy. It's a wonderful interview, and I think you're going to love it. This podcast is brought to you by my patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. Friends, in these somewhat difficult times, it is you guys that help to keep this thing going and growing. And let me tell you, by the grace of God, it is growing by leaps and bounds. And I am so thankful to you, the listener, and my patrons in particular. And I have a new patron to welcome and thank. Zane, thank you. Welcome to the community, and thank you so much for your support of this show. You're the best. If you want to support the show, guys, it's at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic, or a one-time donation at paypal.me slash cordialcatholic. Thank you so much. 
If you can, please follow this podcast, please subscribe to it, and please rate and review. And hey, tell a friend who might be interested. This episode in particular is a fantastic one to share with those friends who may be on the road to conversion. Without any further ado, here's my fantastic interview with Father James Bradley. Please listen and enjoy. Hi, friends, and welcome back to The Cordial Catholic. I'm thrilled to have you back again this week and thrilled to welcome my guest this week. It is Father James Bradley. Father Bradley is an assistant professor of canon law at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. He is a priest of the Personal Ordinariate of Our Lady of Walsingham. He has degrees in music, theology, and canon law, and he is currently undertaking a doctorate in liturgical studies at the University of Vienna. Father Bradley, I am thrilled to have you on the show this week. Welcome and hello. Keith, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you. All right. I'm, I'm, I am thrilled to have you, and I'll jump right into this if we can. I'm a convert to Catholicism from evangelical Christianity, actually. And as I was looking into the Catholic faith, in particular, the ancient liturgies and the idea of the Eucharist, as an evangelical, these things were very foreign to me. So I studied intensely and considered for a time making a pit stop in Anglicanism. Now, I've learned since that this isn't particularly uncommon, actually. And I want to circle back to this a little bit later, but I, I wonder, uh, to begin, Father, if we can unpack some of these terms, because I'm here in Canada, and we have a very deeply rooted tradition of Anglicanism. Where you are in the U.S., however, we're talking about the Episcopalian Church, and a keen listener may realize that you're likely not originally from the U.S., so we're also talking about the Church of England as a kind of a national church, but then... Into all this mix, we throw the idea of the Anglo-Catholic identity, you know, Anglicans who identify with a kind of high churchness, if I can put it that way. And finally, this thing that I encountered actually fairly early on in my conversion to Catholicism that I knew as the Anglican Ordinariate. Now, maybe this is too tall of a task, I wonder, to begin with, but I wonder if we can briefly sketch out these different beasts and if you're up for it, maybe, Father, take us both in a time machine and on a world tour. What is Anglicanism in all its different forms? And then, more importantly, maybe most importantly, what is this ordinariate? Well, that's a, a, a great question, and it's a good place for us to start, I think. So, first of all, let's, um, let's go back to the uh, Protestant Reformation of the 16th century and the break in England with the Catholic Church. And that's really the origins of what we would now term Anglicanism. And the word simply means English in that sense. The Anglican Church is the English Church, the Church of the Angles. And um, so the the idea of, of the uh, Church of England developed in, in England, obviously, but because of the influence of uh, England across the world, of Britain across the world, the religion of England, the national religion of England, the Anglican religion, spread with with British culture across uh, the globe. And so you ended up having uh, Anglican groups, Anglican churches founded 
in other countries. So, for instance, in Canada and on Aust- in Australia and New Zealand, and even in the United States and far-flung places like that. So, the 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 Anglican uh, tradition, in a sense, spread really from the Church of England um, and. Uh, has, has has grown into um, what we now call a sort of worldwide communion. So the Anglican communion, which is the body of all of the churches founded from the Church of England, as it were, um, still exists. And that's that's the kind of operating entity, I suppose, um, that, that stretches across the world. Now, we also need to say that... Um, those uh, groups obviously broke from the Catholic Church in the 16th century and so uh, took a, a path really more akin to Protestantism than Catholicism, but with some Catholic identity and some quite clear Catholic identity as it developed. And we can talk about that a little bit as we go on. In more recent history, really from the mid to late 20th century onwards, that body of Anglicans, the Anglican communion, has, has begun to break up. And so you've seen groups separate themselves from the Anglican communion, but remain, as they would put it, Anglican. Now, in the United States, they call them, members of the Anglican communion call themselves Episcopalians. They're part of the Protestant Episcopal Church of the United States of America. And uh, those groups that have separated from the Anglican communion would describe themselves as Anglican. But to, to an Englishman, anyone who's Anglican is basically anyone who's either in the Anglican communion or from the Anglican Communion has broken away from it. So like a lot of Protestant groups, um, the Anglican Communion has fractured, and these groups now exist in lots of different ways, in lots of different parts, you know, part communion, partial communion, so on and so forth. So throw into the mix, um, come 2009, Pope Benedict saying to many of these Anglicans, and we can go back to the reasons why, many of these Anglicans who had got to the point of saying, we actually want to become Catholic, but we don't want to just become Catholic individually. We want to come and bring with us our liturgical, spiritual and pastoral traditions, our patrimony. Pope Benedict turned around and said, okay, (laughs) and kind of called their bluff and said, right, okay, you can have what's equivalent to a diocese in the Catholic Church um, and in the form of these ordinariates, which we can talk about a little bit more again, Um, And you can come into the Catholic Church, be received into the full communion of the Catholic Church, be a Catholic like anyone else who's a Catholic, but also have um, some of your traditions, your patrimony, your heritage, and bring that back into full communion with the Church. So we're thinking probably the people who um, on the whole responded to that were people who were obviously already quite close to the Catholic Church. So within the history of Anglicanism now, I just want to kind of focus on on a particular group and a particular part of history. So come the the late 19th and early 20th century, you get a group of people who begin to look at the historical origins of Anglicanism. You mentioned yourself that in in your journey towards the Catholic Church, you began to look at the Catholic faith, the ancient liturgies, the idea of the Eucharist, and so on and so forth. That's precisely what happened with these Anglicans. They began to rediscover the ancient traditions of the church, to read the fathers of the church, to discover the liturgical life of the church, and so on and so forth. And the person that we, if, that listeners are most likely to have heard of, who's part of this group, is John Henry Newman. 
And really from Newman's time onwards, a group of people began to exist in the Church of England in particular, but also some of these other Anglican churches across the world that traveled, as it were, towards full communion with the Catholic Church and began to imitate the Catholic Church in lots of different ways, doctrinally, liturgically, in their approach to certain things. So by the time Pope Benedict comes along in 2009, there's a group of people who are already living um, quite a Catholic life to all intents and purposes, but outside the Catholic Church, without the sacraments, without the the joy of, of full communion. And those that we would describe those people as either high church or Anglo-Catholic or you know, Tractarian ritualist, depending on how sort of specific you want to get. Does that give you some sort of indication to start with? <laughs> yeah, that's a fantastic. That's both a time traveling, time machine experience and a world tour. That's a, you've accomplished the goal fantastically. <laughs> it's my best Doctor Who impression. <laughs> <laughs> of course, we must make this reference uh, as you are uh, British. <laughs> fantastic. So that's a that's a fantastic sketch of of the whole situation. Um, I wonder then if we can uh, look at you individually. I want to talk about your journey to the priesthood because I'm very very curious. And I'm sure listeners are curious as well. With this context of Anglicanism and th- this ordinariate that Pope Benedict. Um, established. Can you talk to us about what you drew, what drew you to the priesthood and in particular to the to the personal ordinariate? How did you end up as a priest in the ordinariate? Yeah, so I um, let's go right back. So I, I grew up as an Anglican. I was um, um, baptized in the Church of England as a, as an infant and um, we went to church as I was growing up. My I remember my my mother being confirmed in the Church of England as a, as a young adult. Um, and um, we were, I would say, kind of moderately attached to the Church of England in early years. <laughs> but that became a little bit more intense when I went to school. I went to boarding school at the age of seven. And um, when I was there, I started um, um, singing in the choir. And it was the experience of singing and singing in church, in chapel, and singing sacred music that really began to kind of have an impact on me. And first of all, it was a purely kind of artistic impact in a sense, an aesthetic impact. So I loved the music, I loved singing, and I was encouraged by the director of music to get a singing teacher. And the singing teacher said to me at the age of eight or nine, you should think about um, auditioning for a choir in one of the cathedrals. Now there's a great musical tradition in the cathedrals in England. So I went up the road to Winchester and I auditioned and I was a chorister at Winchester Cathedral. I was very fortunate to be able to sing there. So every day we were singing services, three service, sung services on Sunday, daily sung, even song, you know, two, two hour long rehearsals a day, Christmas and Easter, we didn't get home until five or six o'clock in the evening. You know, it's, it was really full on, but a wonderful experience and something that stayed with me my whole life. But that experience of music led me to then um, want to uh, study music. And so I went to senior school and carried on singing. And as I left school, I thought, well, I'm going to take a year out before I go to university to study music. And I went to be um, a choral scholar in an Anglican cathedral, actually in Portsmouth. And um, it was really when I was there that I had an experience for the first time of, of the liturgy. So I'd experienced, obviously, liturgical worship in, in the office and in the Eucharistic services of the Church of England and so on and so forth. 
but I hadn't really understood what it was. I was, I was, I was just involved with the music side. I didn't really kind of make that connection. I, I believed, I had faith, but I didn't really make that connection with, with worship. And it was in Portsmouth that I made that connection with worship. And I began to um, really kind of learn about the liturgy and learn about the worship of the church. I realized that I'd kind of got bitten by the bug when one day I, it was my responsibility to walk the boy choristers from their rehearsal up to the school where they were, where I was also helping and working. And um, I realized I'd been bitten by the bug because I'd arrived an hour before I had to pick them up. Uh, in the morning. So I was in the church by about seven uh, to, to sneak into the back to hear morning prayer and um, the communion service being celebrated. <laughs> so so uh, it was it, that that experience of music was important. So I then went really from there to university with a sense that I wanted to be ordained in the Church of England, that I wanted to be an ordained minister in the Church of England. And um, so I went to university, I left university, I took another year out because I can't make up my mind about anything and <laughs> spent a year working in a parish in London to get some experience of what it was like to be in pastoral ministry. And then I went to, um, to seminary, to a theological college called St. Stephen's House in Oxford, which of, any, of all of the kind of high church Anglo-Catholic theological colleges, St. Stephen's House is is really kind of as high up the candle as you can get. And I had a wonderful, wonderful three years there. It was a great experience. And it was a place where three questions were posed to me. What is a priest? What is the church? And where do you fit into all of this? And I asked myself those questions. And during my time there, Pope Benedict announced the ordinariate, although it wasn't set up for a little longer. So I left there to become an Anglican curate. I served for about a year as an Anglican curate. And then um, when the ordinariate in England was set up in 2011, January 2011, um, we came into the Catholic Church, into the ordinariate, um, with about 40 of our parishioners, the two clergy, and about 40 of our parishioners in a group um, to bring, not just to bring our, our, our heritage, but actually to bring our people and to stay together as a group. And we were received into the Catholic Church together. You asked about specifically how did I end up a priest? Well, I kind of traced out my journey of how I sort of saw priesthood in terms of my um, Anglican life. But the, the decision for me was really one day, I remember, between being ordained as an Anglican deacon and um, the ordinariate um, being established properly, we knew it was going to happen. And I remember one day, I, I, it was my responsibility to unlock the church. So I went into the church one morning and unlocked the church and went round and lit all the shrine lamps. Um, and, you know, got everything ready for morning prayer. And I looked up at the altar in the Anglican parish church and I thought, whatever you want, Lord, I will do if I can stand at the altar and be privileged to, to offer the mysteries. And I basically just gave myself over to the Lord and said, you know, I, if I'm going to become a Catholic, then I have a duty to offer my life to be a priest. And if you don't want me to be a priest, you'll make that pretty clear pretty quickly. <laughs> so, um, And thanks be to God, he was pretty clear that he did want me to become a priest, and here I am. <laughs> well, that's a fantastic story. And I must say, I, I didn't put this in my notes or, or, or mention this in the prep for the show or even think about this in the prep for the show, but, I mean, the, the way that I first, I think, encountered you, I think it was on Twitter, because you're rather prolific on Twitter. You're, you're hmm. out there. But I think it might have even been before that, because if I can recall correctly, when I was really looking into what the what the Catholic Church was and investigating these claims of historicity and the sacraments, 
I remember at some point encountering the, this picture of this this young hip looking priest with incense just everywhere in front of an altar. And it's you. I don't know where it was from. It's somewhere on, on Flickr or somewhere. <laughs> yeah. So when you say that, you know, you were here before the Eucharist as a, as a deacon, uh, you know, praying these prayers, I just think like, yeah, well, you, you know, the Lord took you further along, made you a priest. And then the act of you being a priest, just in a picture, was just so inspiring to me as I was, I was on this journey to the Catholic Church. So that's a really interesting tie-in for me to think that, you know, that prayer that you prayed uh, impacted me, in a sense, there in front of the altar as well. You know, I, I'm always astonished, both in my in my own uh, ministry as a priest, but also as you know, a, a fellow Christian, how much of an impact simple things that priests do has on people. You know, there are little things that I can look back on in my in my life which were clear signposts towards where I am now, and it's those little indicators, those little moments of God's grace that push us along and encourage us and, and, and help us, really, in our, in our pilgrimage to the Lord. <laughs> Amen. So, I wonder for you in your journey, I mean, you talk about this high, uh, high Anglo-Catholic identity, and this is something that I'm, I'm I mean, I'm, I'm a Catholic, so I, I encounter lots of Catholics in my daily, in my orbit. I also encounter a lot of converts and a lot of people who are looking into the Catholic Church through, the, through my writing and through this podcast. And I wonder for you, this Anglo-Catholic identity, I mean, you could have, in a sense, completely abandoned your Anglican roots and gone and become a normal diocesan Catholic priest or something. You could have gone and studied in, in, in Rome and completely left the Anglican heritage, uh, in a sense. Can you talk about the, the importance of that Anglican identity as as you were formed, as you were growing up, and then... The draw to, I mean, it sounds like, you know, you chose the high Anglican uh, seminary to study in. It sounds like you were studying with people and you were then in a community of people who are very Catholic-minded. You became Catholics uh, uh, very shortly after it was, this way was made by, by the Pope. But still, that Anglican, Anglican identity was obviously very important to you and to that community that you served and came in with. Can you unpack that a bit for us, That the importance of that identity? Yeah. So, first of all, I, I think there is something uh, very personal about it. Your, your own Christian, one's own Christian journey it is, by its very nature, a personal thing. Um, and obviously, it, it's it's in the life of the church, and so there's there's a, there's a, a sort of community aspect to it, but there's also something very personal about it. And I would I can only speak for myself, but I suspect this is the case with with others who have come into the church through the ordinariates as well. There's a real sense that the that what brought us to that point was not nothing. Now, that's not to say that it was the full life of grace that we experienced in the Catholic Church. It, it wasn't. But God was moving in that, and God was acting in that, and God was prompting us in that. And I think that means that it's something worthwhile. It's something worth preserving. And it's perhaps, as Pope Benedict said, not just worth preserving for us, for those people who have come into the Catholic Church, into the ordinariate, but also as a treasure to be shared, also as something that the Church can learn from in her work of evangelization, in her work of witness, and also something that people who are currently outside the Catholic Church can look at and say, 
gosh, I, I didn't expect that. You know, the Catholic Church has, has a bad rap for being monolithic. And we know that it's not true. Anyone who's a Catholic can tell you that the Catholic Church is anything but monolithic. Sometimes you wish it was a little bit more uniform. <laughs> but th- that, that diversity, always in the unity of faith, always in unity of doctrine, always in unity of communion and authority, that diversity of expressions of faith is is very Catholic. And I think that's um, something that's um, is good and fruitful and positive, both for those of us who are already in the church, but also for people who are outside the fullness of the Catholic Church to be able to see in the church. There was a, um, a Benedictine monk who was involved um, heavily with the reunion movement in the 1920s and 1930s in Belgium, a man called Don Lambert Baudouin. And Baudouin said uh, he prayed that Anglicanism would be able to become connected with the Catholic Church in a way that was united but not absorbed. United but not absorbed. And the ordinariate, I think, embodies that. It, it's not the full unification of the Church of England with the Catholic Church. And we can go into why that's not the case. We can go into why that's not happened and is unlikely to happen in any time soon. But it is an example of the good things that the Catholic Church identifies in a community outside her visible bounds and being brought into communion, communion, not being absorbed, not being you know um, plastered over, but being united truly with the Catholic Church. Um, and those things um, giving grace to, to the members of the ordinary, but also giving grace um, to the wider church. I'm always reminded, by the way, also of just a, lo- a lovely, lovely little phrase of Newman. After he became a Catholic, he was written to by um, um, uh, Delisle, Ambrose Delisle, and uh, who was who was trying to put together a, a group of people who would be able to come into the Catholic Church in a group. And he wrote to Newman asking for support, and Newman said, "I'd be glad to support anyone who, in the Church of England, is looking in this way and is at the moment shivering at the gates of the church." And I, I, I look back at my own life and realize that we were shivering at the gates. Um, we knew what we wanted. We were convicted of our, of our um, Anglican heritage, but Catholic faith. We knew we wanted to come into the Catholic Church, but we were shivering at the gates. And Pope Benedict came along with a big old key <laughs> and, and opened the gates. Oh, that's a fantastic image. I mean, I can, I can see that expanded to all kinds of converts, you know, these not least of all, converts, converts from Anglicanism. I can, I can think that, of that applying to so many different groups of people who are looking for the, the warmth of, of the church, entrance into the church, that I can think of my own life. You know, I was struggling to interpret the Bible for myself. I was struggling to understand why different denominations I was, I was looking at celebrated things in different ways and didn't have the sacraments here, didn't even know what they were, didn't even name them, had no liturgy. I was I was shivering at the gates for something more, something more full than what I had. I think that's a fantastic quotation. Okay, I I think there are, and I want to unpack this next um, thing here, thinking about converts to uh, uh, the Catholic faith from Anglicanism. I think there are two types of converts, maybe. And I think um, there are converts like me who come from some other Christian tradition but end up seriously exploring Anglicanism as maybe a kind of pit stop on the way to Rome, whether we know it or not. 
I'm thinking of people like here in um, North America. Thomas Howard has quite a popular book, or or guests I've had in this program like uh, Lawrence Feingold or Paul McCusker, who I've interviewed both of them. Um, kind of had a long history in the Anglican Church before then becoming Catholic. I was personally drawn to the history and tradition, and of course the liturgy that was present in what seemed like a very old Christian faith. And I thought, well, if I can become Anglican, I can avoid some of those what I saw as religious add-ons of Catholicism, (laughs) right? Then there are those Anglicans who are, well, Anglican, but are drawn maybe deeper, we can say, into the history and tradition and liturgy um, and maybe authority of the Catholic Church, historical giants like you've mentioned, St. John Henry Newman. And listeners can, of course, uh, listen to my interviews with Dr. Feingold and Paul McCusker back in the archives. But from your corner of the great big Catholic Church, I wonder, what do you hear about why, first of all, people might become Anglican on their way to becoming Catholic, whether they know it or not at the time? And then why do these people and some of those who were already Anglican, what do you hear about them ultimately becoming Catholic? I mean, we mentioned Newman, this idea of, of shivering at the gates and, and those reasons. But from your corner of things, what, what did you hear about these people becoming Catholic? What are the reasons that draw them deeper? And maybe you can speak from your own experience as well and those in your community that you know. What draws people deeper towards becoming Catholic out of those Anglican traditions? The Second Vatican Council, in its document on ecumenism, Unitatis Red Integratio, highlights the, the Anglican communion in a particular way amongst those groups of Christians who have separated from the Catholic Church as a result of the um, break in the Church in the 16th century. And the document, but also um, some writing by the then Joseph Ratzinger, highlight really quite beautifully, I think, how within Anglicanism there were preserved certain Catholic institutions. So we think, for instance, of the threefold ministry of deacon, priest, and bishop. The, the, the question of, I'm setting aside for a moment the question of the validity of the sacraments, the church has decided on that, but the institution, the idea, is there present in Anglicanism in a way that it's not present in mainstream Protestantism, in many Protestant denominations. You have a centrality of uh, liturgical worship. It's not just open a Bible, say some prayers. It's formalized worship. You have the institutions of the church. You know, you have things called dioceses and parishes and all the rest of it. So the Church of England looks more Catholic than some Protestant denominations. And because of that, I think people who are coming to the Catholic Church, when they're reading the Fathers, when they're reading um, about the Eucharist and about the nature of the Church, often because of prejudices that they've held or that they've been presented with earlier on in life, can't make that leap immediately to the full communion of the Catholic Church. And so they seek a place where they can embrace the things that they found, but also not feel, as it were, too compromised from where they were. And Anglicanism is, for many people, I think, that stepping stone. Now, you, you uh, talk about it not, not as a stepping stone, but as a pit stop. And I think that's, that's probably right. Um, it's, it's, it's a place where people often sort of pause on their way to the Catholic Church. And in the life of the ordinariates, especially, I would say, in the United States, 
my experience at least, I'm happy to be corrected on this, my experience is that a lot of people in the ordinariate in this country, in the United States, are in that category. They're people who have come from um, Protestant groups through some sort of Anglican group, either a formal Anglican communion group or another, um, on their way to becoming Catholic. And because of that, they've acquired something of the Anglican tradition, but really the Anglican tradition has been almost a springboard for them. It's not been the place where they've they've been nurtured and where they've um, gained their Christian identity. It's been a place where they've, they've picked up some things which are important on the way into the Catholic Church. That's not a bad thing, by the way. I'm not, that's not a criticism. It's, it's just an observation. But there are also people for whom Anglicanism has been their whole life. I think my, my, myself and my, my, my family, my parents, my sister all became Catholics. And all of us were Anglicans our whole life. We knew nothing else. And there was, no, there was, there was never any hint that we might do something on the way to becoming Catholic. Um, so, yeah, I can certainly see those two kinds of, um, of, of people who have come into the Catholic Church from Anglicanism, either through Anglicanism or from Anglicanism proper. Um, and, and I can certainly appreciate for people who are in, shall we say, more Protestant groups, um, that Anglicanism, in a sense, has something of the attraction of the Catholic Church without um, being the, the leap that's required to, to enter into full communion with, with Rome. Yeah, I'm thinking of people who I'm, I'm thinking of Paul McCusker, who I spoke to, who I know you don't know personally, um, but he... His experience, as we unpacked it in, in our interview, was leaving kind of evangelical churches that were fracturing and finding the Episcopalian church and finding this liturgy and this high churchness and these beautiful hymns and sung services that he that were incredible, that were were un, unknown to him as it would have been to me as an evangelical. But then, for him, he experienced suddenly these splits in the Episcopal Church over these different issues, and it struck him as strange, he recalled, that suddenly people were voting on different issues of the Church, and and these votes were, sometimes uh, the conversation around these votes, he recalled, weren't even to do with, with Scripture or the tradition the Church had upheld, but kind of people's different ideas, and 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 these same kind of fractures began in the Episcopalian Church, as he saw in his evangelical churches that he had left, and so then was looking for where can I find this liturgy and this beautiful sacred, um, the, the sacraments and this sacred music and these kinds of things. Where can I find this? Plus the authority that that could rule on these different things that are splitting apart the church, and that's I think where he moved towards the Catholic Church. Is, do you get that sense? Is that a thing that because I, I can imagine, I can imagine myself being Anglican in Canada these days, where the Anglican Church is also experiencing kind of a fracturing as well over different issues. I can imagine looking around and and thinking to myself, well, where can I go then that has the authority to rule over these things that are fracturing this church? Is that a sense? for you that that maybe moved you to becoming catholic out of that tradition yes and and actually you know as you were talking i wrote down on my notepad in front of me two words with a big number one and number two next to them one liturgy two authority so i think you absolutely hit the nail on the head you know people often come to anglicanism because they experience its liturgical worship and they experience something of beauty in that um, the joy of the ordinariate, of course, is that all of the things that they've experienced are now 
in a liturgical book of the Catholic Church. So in front of me, I have a copy of Divine Worship, the Missal, which is the Missal of the Ordinariates, which has in it many of the prayers and texts and chants that will be familiar to anyone who's experienced Anglican worship in any in any way, anywhere across the world. So I think that liturgy is so important, and not just as a, as a kind of experience for people um, who are coming through Anglicanism towards Catholicism or who are looking for something more than, their, than the Protestantism that they're in at the moment, but also because, because it is a way to this understanding of authority. You know, when you say amen in the liturgy, you're saying, I agree, I assent to something. And you have to ask yourself what you're assenting to. And if the thing that you're assenting to is something that can change, if it's something that's malleable, if it's something that can be, you know, that that blows about in the wind, I think St. Paul says something about this, you know, then it's not the Christian religion. And when you come to realize that, you have to seek a source of real authority somewhere else. And I think Pope Benedict's genius is that he both understood the, the church and the papacy in a way that I think is is, is profound and beautiful um, and and accessible to people who un- who understood the church fathers and who had an understanding of the early church and he understood the importance of the liturgy and he saw that something of this existed in these groups of Anglicans that he wanted to bring into the Catholic Church so in a sense he sort of sewed these various things together. Now, just let me say something about authority, because I think about this quite a lot. I remember as an Anglican that we talked a lot about communion. We wanted to be in communion with each other. We wanted to be in communion with our bishop. We wanted to work out ways that we could be in better communion with each other within Anglicanism, within the Church of England. And we desired communion with the Catholic Church. And we used to talk about full communion, impaired communion, out of communion, all of these different things. Communion in Catholic doctrine requires three things. It requires unity of doctrine, unity in the sacraments, and unity of governance. And if one of those three things is missing, you are not in communion with each other. So you can have some, uh, it's, it's a particular um, means of communion, for instance, when we look at the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church, because uh, they have two of the three. <laughs> But the, the, the authority of the Catholic Church exists. The co- communion with the Catholic Church is manifested in three ways, doctrine, sacraments, and governance. And I remember as an Anglican, you know, we, we were so focused on who we could receive communion from, who had valid orders, and all the rest of it, that we forgot about uh, unity of doctrine. You know, we would say, oh, well, so-and-so was ordained by so-and-so, and that was okay, even if so-and-so had a completely erroneous view of the Church and the Eucharist. Or the priesthood. They didn't believe in in the priesthood. We would say, um, oh, well, you know, we're in communion with this person and this person, um, but we don't accept their governance. So we'd arrange sort of various kind of um, um, complex ways of having a bishop. So we had a bishop who was our um, sacramental bishop and a bishop who was our bishop in governance. We used to call them the father-in-law and the father-in-God, you know. And the, the, the fact is that's not communion. All three of these things have to exist in Catholic doctrine for, for communion to exist. And I, I would just appeal to, to anyone who, who's listening who's 
you know, in uh, an Anglican uh, group or a Protestant organization to just think about that and to really ponder those three things. And where will you find governance, sacraments and doctrine? Where will you find this full communion? I would argue that the only place it can be found is in is uniquely in the Catholic Church. <laughs> that is very well said, Father. I can tell I'm speaking to a priest and a canon lawyer at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> well, it's a fantastic. I was going to ask you because I do. I mean, partly what prompted me to reach out to you, other than stalking you on Twitter for a number of years now and admiring your work and your <laughs> your your journey, was I, what were these emails I receive and these people I speak to? I've I've received these emails. I've 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 spoken to these people who are deeply rooted in the Anglican tradition, who come from an Anglo-Catholic uh, sensibility. But, but do exactly as you are saying, Father, who try and, and work out a, a way of awkwardly figuring out how they're kind of Catholic in this way and, well, not quite Catholic this way, but if we can, if we can do it this way, maybe it, it kind of fits more. And it sounds like this is something that you experienced firsthand and, and you're giving us a fantastic picture of maybe the dangers, the irresponsibility of, of doing that. And on the other hand, the fantastic opportunity that the Catholic Church presents to, to hey, let's shed all of that kind of worrisome, kind of awkward working out of our uh, succession and our, our authority and, and embrace the, the, the Anglican identity within the Catholic Church, right, which now beautifully exists. Yeah, so I, I think that's right. And, and I think quite often when, when people are in the, that situation, when they're, um, you know, as I say, you know, sort of shivering at the gates in the words of Newman, um, they're looking for some concrete answer, some concrete way forward. Um, and I, I think the ordinariat offers that, you know, I mean, I, just to refer you again to the book that's in front of me, you know, I, I can look through this book and there are texts here which I've been using in my liturgical prayer and personal prayer since since I remember being able to pray. And at the very front of the book, there's a, there's a, a coat of arms and the coat of arms is out of Pope Francis. And it's got, you know, the names of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith and all the rest of it stamped in the book. So it's, it's an absolutely Catholic liturgical book, but it's full of texts which are familiar to me as an Anglican. And I don't think any Anglican who has a Catholic sensibility understands that that Catholicism is, is tied to the Anglican communion. And if that's the case, then neither can the Anglicanism be tied to the Anglican communion. If this is something which is necessarily Catholic in its in its essence, if you believe that to be the case, then you also have to believe that it that it can exist in its fullness, and perhaps even in a in a greater sense um, in in the full communion of the church. I, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking back to, to the um, Anglican parish where I was served very briefly um, before becoming a Catholic, and uh, you know, it was probably one of the most sort of um, uh, sort of ritualist, high church, Anglo-Catholic parishes you could think of. I mean, we had, you know, big six candles on the altar, tabernacle, Eucharistic devotions, divine mercy chaplet. We used the Roman missals most of the time. We had, you know, preached using the catechism. There was a confessional in the church. We had shrines to the saints, you know, and so on and so forth. I look back on that now and I, I realize how beautiful it was, but how impoverished it was because it was all of the 
all of the niceties without any of the real substance. And that's not in any way to denigrate it. I've already spoken at some length about how much I appreciate my Anglican background and identity. And I, the, the fact that I appreciate it so much is why, exactly why I'm so passionate about the ordinariates, because I appreciate that Anglican identity. But it, 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 it doesn't have the, the depth. It doesn't have the, 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 the concreteness, to create a, a word, um, that, that you find in, in the Catholic Church. And so to be able to be a Catholic, to be able to experience the Lord's grace in the church, to be able to experience the peace and the joy of full communion, and to be able to retain all of those things that have made me who I am, that have made my family who they are, that have made the communities that I've been part of who they are, that is a gift beyond measure. And if you're outside the full community of the Catholic Church, you know, struggling with these things, I just would just say, uh, it's amazing. <laughs> it's wonderful. And it's a great gift. Very well said. I mentioned before uh, that pretty early on in my conversion experience, I found myself in an Anglican ordinary at Mass. Someone somewhere had heard that I was a convert, and they slipped me a little flyer uh, with this coat of arms in the front. Uh, I didn't, you know, looked very British to me as a Canadian. And it was advertising a little uh, a Sunday night vigil Mass at the beautiful old downtown church uh, where I live. And they described it to me as a Latin Mass in English. I thought, okay, well, I'll try this. I was, I'd been to a Latin Mass um, earlier. I you know I was a new Catholic. I was looking for a parish to land in, uh, looking at these different liturgical experiences. And uh, looking back, I think it was a pretty accurate description of what I encountered when I was there. And I'm not just not just saying this because you're my guest and you have a very serious British accent. Really, <laughs> <laughs> this was, I think, the most beautiful form of the Mass to this day that I've experienced. Was this ordinary? Mass. I wonder if you can talk to us uh, about the origins of the, I want to put it in quotes, Anglican form of the Catholic Mass, and what somebody would experience if they were fortunate enough to participate in one. So I don't think we've got time really to go back and, and to discuss <laughs> the origins of Anglican liturgical uh, worship, but um, let me just say that, first of all, I think um, it's important to know that in the Church of England, the, the, the principal liturgical book is called the Book of Common Prayer. And that Book of Common Prayer has, very, has a different tradition in different places, in Scotland, in the United States, in Canada, in Australia. And later on, those different Anglican groups adopted their own Book of Common Prayer. And so there are little variations everywhere. There isn't an Anglican liturgical book which you can point to, which everybody has. But the 1549, 1552, 1662 Book of Common Prayer in England is really the genesis, it's the, it's the, the seedling, and everything flows from that. That's the first thing to say. The second is that when we talk about um, the, the ordinariate liturgy, so the, we call this divine worship, when we talk about divine worship, which is the form of the liturgy that's used by the ordinariates in the Catholic Church, we have to understand, first of all, that because this came from outside the Catholic Church, there's necessarily been a process of refinement. So those things, those liturgical, pastoral and spiritual traditions that we've been invited to bring into the Catholic Church as a gift for, to, to sustain our own life, but also as a treasure to be shared, those things have had to be um, checked, as it were, to make sure that they're in um, harmony with the um, teaching of the church. You know, we talked about communion, doctrine, sacraments, and governance. So we have to check that the liturgy 
is in line with all of those things. And that's why in, in, in Rome, the office that has charge of the ordinariates isn't, and, and its liturgy isn't the office that's usually in charge of liturgy or the office that's in charge of ecumenism. It's the office that's in charge of doctrine, the congregation for the doctrine of the faith, because it's primarily doctrinal questions. So the liturgy has been um, examined by the Catholic Church, and it's been reassembled, as it were, so it's sort of taking a kit car apart and putting it back together and putting a better engine in it <laughs> and, 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 and given, us to, given us in Divine Worship the Missal. So Divine Worship the Missal is, is a Catholic version, as it were, of those Anglican forms. Now, you said that you had experienced um, an ordinary mass and that someone had described it to you as a Latin mass in English. Let's take that apart. So first of all, the ordinariates are part of the Latin church. That means they're part of the Western part of the Catholic church. So we are Roman Rite Christians. We are the same as most Christians in the United States and England and Canada. So that's what we mean by Latin, properly speaking. But when people talk about the Latin mass, what they normally mean is what we call the extraordinary form, the pre-conciliar Latin mass, the, the mass that was celebrated everywhere, in most places at least, until um, the Second Vatican Council just after. So people often look at the ordinary liturgy and their experience is either of that, the extraordinary form, or it's of the ordinary form. It's what they experience in their parish on Sunday morning. And so they look at the ordinary liturgy and they want to kind of work out where it fits in. So they'll say, well, it's a bit like that and it's a bit like that and it's a bit like that. So you get people saying entirely innocently and understandably, Oh, it's the extraordinary form in English. It's the Latin Mass in English, or it's it's the it's the ordinary form. It's the Novus Ordo, but it's just in, in slightly old-fashioned language. Well, I want to say it's none of those things, because it's this great gift that is by itself something which we can look at, which we can appreciate, which we can worship with. It doesn't need to fit into any pre-existing box. The ordinary it doesn't fit into any pre-existing box. The whole structure. There are other ordinariates in the church, but not like these. The whole structure is new as a canonical structure. The, the Catholic Church has bent over backwards to make this work and to provide new ways for Anglicans to come into the full communion of the Catholic Church. And to my mind, it, it's, it's limiting to say it's one thing or the other. It is its own thing, and that's a good thing, and we should appreciate it on its own merits. So I don't have any problem at all with people saying it's the Latin Mass in English, and I don't have any problem at all with people saying it's the ordinary form in, in, in traditional language or some combination of those things. But as long as they go from that to then actually say, okay, now let's appreciate it on its own merits. You know, whenever you see something new, you always try and um, describe it with terms and ideas that you're familiar with. But you've got to go beyond that to really understand it. <laughs> I know you say you have no problem with the description, but, you know, in the very serious British accent, which you were born with, it sounds like I'm getting a, bit, a little bit in trouble. <laughs> no, not at all, not at all. Uh, you, you will find in, in Divine Worship, the Missal, lots of prayers, lots of um, parts of the Mass that are familiar to you if you go to either the ordinary form or the extraordinary form, and it is entirely understandable that people will see the ordinary liturgy and see in that the things that are familiar to them. And some people are very passionate about some of these things, you know. So, for instance, if you go to an ordinary uh, mass, it's quite likely that the priest and the people will be facing the same way. 
Um, and some people will latch onto that and almost um, almost kind of see that as a sort of political statement. But for us, it's just what we've always done. So it doesn't carry with it the same political statements that it would do for somebody who was you know, in a regular parish, for instance. So it's important that we, you know, I really don't mind people saying these things, but but, um, but it's important that we go beyond that to understand that this comes from a different experience of Christianity. Um, and so it doesn't carry with it the same sort of um, prejudices, choices, you know, particular sort of um, preferences that um, that you might experience in other ways. You know, you have put that so well. You you have, and I, and you call it a gift, not only to Anglicans coming into the Catholic Church, but also to the wider Catholic Church. And that's exactly what I encountered. I mean, I, I mean this truly, not just because you're scaring me, but what I experienced in in that that form of the Mass, and this was early on in my Catholic experience, was was this beautiful, this beautiful singing, these beautiful prayers, this beautiful liturgy. It, you know, it that was an enormous gift. To me, as a non-Anglican, as a new Catholic, it was an amazing mm-hmm. gift to experience. And, and I, I completely affirm what you're saying and, and understand and agree with you. And especially, I want to underline, too, what you said about the Catholic Church bending over backwards as far as it can to make a way for for Anglicans to come into the church. And I think I want to ask you one last question in a minute about, about the way forward for greater unity in the church, but I think this may lead into it. I mean, Here's a way that the church is trying its its darndest to make a way for Anglo Catholics, for Anglicans who are maybe there as a kind of a pit stop or as a stepping stone to come the full way into what we believe to be the full communion with the church that Christ established. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just going back to what we were talking about with the liturgy. I, you, you, it's it's hard for me to stop talking about the liturgy. So, um, but you know, you mentioned um, the experience of, of ordinary liturgy. One of the good things, perhaps one of the few good things that's come out of the current sort of pandemic and the lockdown, is the number of parishes that are live streaming their liturgies. I would just say again to anyone who's listening, who's thinking you know, I'm kind of interested in this, or I'd like to see, or I'm not quite ready to ask those questions, but I'm ready to kind of like peek through the curtain. You know, look up one of the ordinary parishes um, on uh, social media and watch an ordinary mass being live streamed. Get a sense of the liturgy. And if you're interested, I would also recommend a, a, a short prayer book that's been published called the St. Gregory Prayer Book. And the St. Gregory's Prayer Book has got in it a whole collection of prayers from our tradition, which anyone can use in their private prayer and devotion. And it's it's full of some, you know, it's full of, you know, great treasures really of the Anglican patrimony, um, which can be used by by Catholics and Anglicans and others. So, just to kind of put a plug in for those things and say, I, I would really encourage people to to, to seek those things out. <laughs> Fantastic ideas. Okay, I want to close with one more question for you, and I want to talk about unity. You know, for me, this was really nowhere on my radar as an evangelical. We saw the body of Christ as this kind of spiritual communion of all Christian believers, and we differed on what I would say then were kind of minor issues of practice, and it wasn't really a big deal for me to jump from denomination to denomination or from church to church. But when I began to dig into deeper theological issues, in my case around sexuality and gender, which were coming to the fore in the church my wife and I were a part of, 
I realized that in truth, we actually did differ on many issues from denomination to denomination, huge issues, like Mm -hmm. how we're saved and the nature of God and the nature of the church. And the truth was, this wasn't the kind of unity that I thought it was, and certainly not what God intended. I mean, I, I thought about how are we a united church if we can't agree on what the nature of the church is, for example. I know the personal ordinary has been a huge step, a prophetic step, in a sense, maybe, in fostering unity in the Christian church and opening a clear channel, as we've discussed, for Anglicans to come into communion with the Catholic Church. But I wonder what's next? You know, what's the way forward, do you think, for even greater unity in the church, bringing in maybe more more of the Anglican Church into the Catholic Church, but even bringing in, in a greater sense, those other Christian believers who aren't yet Catholic. Do you see this as an example of of something or, or providing some kind of insight into what what we can do next to, to foster more unity? I think it's two things to say. First of all, um, I want to tell you a story. When I became a Catholic, I was... Um, ordained a deacon and I served in a parish in South London and there was a great young adult ministry in the parish and some of the young adults were going to a leadership conference run by the Holy Trinity Brompton and Alpha Consortium at the Royal Albert Hall in London and they asked me to go along and I uh, didn't really want to go if I'm honest but I went along and it was uh, it was a good experience. One of the speakers was Rick Warren, who will be known, I'm sure, to many listeners, who is a very engaging speaker and a very thoughtful person. And in the context of his conversation with with the people gathered there, he talked about the church as the bride of Christ. And I remember afterwards we went for lunch, and these young Catholics, all of whom had been Catholic from birth, were so excited about this. And they kept saying, did you hear what he said, Father? Did you hear what he said? You know, he, he was talking about the bride of Christ. It's such Catholic language, such Catholic language. So I said, well, I, I agree. It's Catholic language. It's biblical language. Therefore, it's Catholic language. Yeah, absolutely. But what does he mean by the church? And when you boil it down, you realize that when people say the church, they mean different things by it. They mean... Um, you know, this merely spiritual communion of all Christian believers, as you described it, or they mean uh, my parish, or they mean the place where I go on Sunday, um, or they may mean two or three of these communities linked together by a branding or, you know, a um, flashy logo or something like that. They mean different things by it. When you go and look at the church fathers, when you look at the, the earliest writings of Christianity, you realize that all of them uniformly mean one thing by the word church. And what they mean is the church of Jesus Christ in communion with the successor of Peter and the bishops in communion with him. Uniformly, every single one of them without fail. And to my mind, that is incredibly convincing. You know, if you want to go back to the origins of Christianity and work out what real Christianity looks like, then you go to the church fathers, you go to the, the, the second, third, fourth, fifth century, and you discover in those writings um, what um, the church is. And when you do that, you find that it's what we see today in the Catholic Church, albeit in different clothes. It's essentially the same thing. So that's the first thing to say. The second is is that I think that the ordinariate, and I would say this wouldn't I, but I think the ordinariate has a very particular role to play in all of this, demonstrating to groups of Christians outside the Catholic Church that 
what's important is the faith. And most of the other things, most of the other things are, the church is big enough to accommodate them. And I think, as I said earlier, that's quite a radical thing for a lot of people. They see the Catholic Church as monolithic, as uniform, and it's not. And I think that witness that the ordinariate brings, as indeed I would say also of the Eastern Catholic Churches, is more and more important in a kind of globalized world where we experience all of these different things. I was listening to something the other day, and they were saying that you know people never used to worry about when they went traveled to Jerusalem. They never worried about worshipping in a different rite when they got there. Or when people went on the grand tour in the 19th century and they ended up in Milan to see the cathedral, then they went and saw the rite and it was slightly different from what they were used to in England. They didn't bat an eyelid about that. That diversity of liturgical expression is, is nothing to the Catholic Church. She can cope with that as long as there's that unity of, of governance, doctrine and sacraments. And I think... That's something to think about. And the ordinariate, I, I think, in a very beautiful way, a very profound way, and and these are Pope Benedict's words, not mine, in a prophetic way, um, embodies that. <laughs> very well said, Father. Well, look, I want to thank you so much for being here, for taking the time out of your day, out of your evening to sit down and, and speak to me. This, I think, has been a fantastic conversation, and I think this will be very edifying and important and, and well-received and enjoyed by our listeners here. Is there anywhere? I follow you on Twitter, of course, I've mentioned that. I sound a little <laughs> crazy mentioning it maybe a few too many times. <laughs> but is there anywhere else you want to point people to go to maybe look into anything further or to follow you and the stuff that you're up to? What would you say to, to listeners to, to maybe dig deeper or learn more about what you're doing? Sure. I mean, I would certainly say that anybody who's interested in the ordinariates should look up um, the website of the Ordinariates. Um, so in the United States, in Australia, in Canada, in England, in Wales and Scotland, even in Japan and the Torres Strait, there are now Ordinariate groups. Um, so if you're in any of those places, you can find that. And as I said, I, I would particularly encourage you to, to look at the, the liturgical life of the Ordinariates and to use the fact that a lot of these communities are now streaming their masses and things to go and have a look and, and get a sense of what that looks like to look at the prayers, and also just to read the preface, really, of Anglicanorum Jatibus, which is the apostolic constitution that Pope Benedict put out, opening the way to the ordinariates, which I think really beautifully illustrates what his vision was for the unity of the Catholic Church um, and and how the ordinariates fit into that. So I'd really encourage that. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm always happy to to help answer questions and things if anyone's got any. Well, thank you so much, Father. I wonder, and I didn't prepare this ahead of time, but if you want to maybe perhaps close us in a prayer as we end the podcast, if you're up for that. Sure. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, meek and humble of heart, you offer to those who follow you a yoke that is good to bear and a burden that is light. Accept, we beg you, our prayer and work of this day, that as we worship you at your altars on earth, so we may come to worship you at your altar in heaven, where with the saints and angels we may praise you world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for your time. So Thank you so much. I want to say God bless you. God bless the fantastic work you're doing for the church. Thank you so much for being here. Keith, thanks so much for having me. It's been great. <laughs> thank you. Take care. God bless you. 
thank you once again for spending an hour of your time with me and my guests in this show. I hope you loved that interview with Father James Bradley. I've been trying to get him on the show for a while. He is incredibly busy. He is teaching, working on his PhD, and doing all kinds of things. We were very fortunate to have a chance to chat, and hopefully you really enjoyed and learned something from that conversation. If you have questions, concerns, follow-up, or feedback, please email me at cordialcatholic at gmail.com. I love to hear from you and write back to all the feedback at some time, eventually, whenever I can. TheCordialCatholic.com is my website where I have a number of blog articles written up there and show notes for the podcast. At CordialCatholic on Twitter, TheCordialCatholic on Facebook. Patreon.com slash CordialCatholic is where you can support this show on a monthly basis. PayPal.me slash CordialCatholic is where you can give a one-time donation. Thank you to everybody who is continuing to support the work of this show. Thank you so much, guys. If you can leave a rating or review for this show, that helps to push the thing out to new people and get them listening. Those ratings and reviews are like gold. They're very, very valuable. So please take some time to leave a rating or a review if you can. Thanks for listening, friends. I'll see you next week. Know that I am praying for you. Take care and God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.